everyone, I'm Riyad Alkyol and this is Dignified Resilience, a podcast on fresh narratives on confronting despair, alleviating distress, and forging ahead. In this podcast, we hear from people around the globe at all stages of life and variety of industries and learn how to channel dignified resilience to survive, feed the soul to heal, and connect with others through inspiring compassionate actions and behavior. At the same time, I aim to grow a global conversation that seeks to better acknowledge different sociocultural perspectives on meaningfully weathering life's adversities and achieving well-being. Here is a noble and humane invitation for surpassing our old selves by learning about and from other people's moving forces and limitations for successfully overcoming affliction and ache. Remember, we have different lives, distinct pathways, cultures, and contexts, but we can find common ground in supporting dignified resilience anywhere. So let's go then. Hello everyone and welcome to Dignified Resilience. I know I say this every time because it's true, but I really am excited and honored to host my today's guest. Uh, author, advocate, educator, and scholar Anna Malika Tubbs is currently a PhD candidate in sociology at the University of Cambridge. Anna, Anna, who is my guest, uh, grew up abroad in Dubai, Mexico, Sweden, Estonia, and Azerbaijan. I learned a little bit about her from her own uh, biography from her website, and that she was influenced by her exposure to all kinds of cultures and beliefs, and thus it became inspired to bring people together through celebration of difference, as she says. Um, she's motivated by her mother's work uh, advocating for women's and children's rights around the world, and thus she uses an intersectional lens in her work to advocate for women of color and educate others. She holds a master's in multidisciplinary gender studies from the University of Cambridge and a bachelor of, uh, in medical anthropology from Stanford University. Her academic focus is on addressing gender and race issues in the United States, especially the pervasive erasure of black women. She has published articles on issues ranging from mass incarceration to the forced sterilization of black women, as well as the importance of feminism, intersectionality, and inclusivity. And her work has been featured in many uh, top-notch publications that you can check from her website. But the reason why she is uh, with me today, besides being extraordinary um, in her activism and in her scholarly work, is her debut book, The Three Mothers, How the Mothers of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and James Baldwin Shaped a Nation. It's uh, being published by Flatiron Books, and it hit the stands on February 2 of this year. And I did not want to get a Kindle book. I wanted to buy a hardcover book. So I had to wait a couple of days before I got it and read it. And it's extraordinary. It's beautiful. And I can't wait to talk to Anna Maleka. So before we start, I want to uh, welcome you, say hello, say congratulations on your book. Uh, thank you so much for being with me. And how are you today? Thank you. Thank you for having me, Riyadh. It's really an honor and a pleasure. And I know this conversation is going to be powerful. And I'm doing well. Yeah, my toddler is sleeping pretty well right now. <laughs> you never know how it's going to go, but I got a good amount of sleep last night. <laughs> That's awesome. I told them downstairs I want an hour of silence. So I hope <laughs> there will be no rushing or some noises. And yes, you never know. <laughs> you never know, exactly. As we see on internet sometimes, and I'm totally for normalizing that. So when anyway, yes. I let's talk about the book. 
Let's start from the beginning. We learned from the book that you were doing a PhD on a topic that would contribute to correcting the erasure of black women. That said, I wish that we talk or tell our listeners what made you write this book? As in, can you tell us how did you decide that these three women in particular would be the main subject of the book? Definitely. Yeah, I started the work with my PhD, like you said. I started at Cambridge knowing that I wanted to help fight the erasure of Black women's stories. Mm -hmm. And I was going to be another one of these people who found hidden figures like Margot Lee Shetterly's book. Uh, indicated. And that gave me a wide range of women to choose from. Um, unfortunately, so many Black women's stories are erased, and there's so much left to tell. And I, I also knew I only had three years to do this work. I'd already done my master's, so it was going to be a shortened program. So I had some limitations. So that's when I came up with the idea of starting with someone who was famous, mm -hmm. um, and then looking for evidence of other lives where the spotlight wasn't on them, but I at least had a lot of sources that I could start with. And then I became really interested in these three famous men, um, mainly because so many people put them in conversation together. I'd also recently watched the documentary, I Am Not Your Negro, based off of James Baldwin's writing. And I was really you know, blown away by both the cinematography as well as the words and um, the, of course, the incredible language that James Baldwin was known for using. And so I first started with those three and immediately, as soon as I looked into all the women in their lives, the black women in their lives, I fell in love with their sisters, with their moms, um, not in James Baldwin's case with his partners, of course, Malcolm X and with MLK Jr., their wives. And I then narrowed it down to think about the woman before the man was even conceived. So even in my own life, my husband has been a political figure um, since I was 19. He was 21. We were kind of, you know, put into this life young and very early. And I was quickly erased. Um, as soon as he stepped out into the spotlight, people called me girlfriend or trophy wife. Um, it was really disrespectful and terribly rude, and I felt this very um, important kind of calling to speak not only for myself, but for so many of us. That, that and I hated this saying of the woman before man, you know, behind every great man is this great woman. I'm not behind him. I'm right next to him. Like, stop saying that as a compliment. I really don't. <laughs> it's not. Um, and that's when I became really excited about the woman before the man, and I focused on the moms. And even in my preliminary research, they just blew me away. I could tell immediately that there was so much left to be said. And even if I could only find you know, the tip of the iceberg, it was gonna be groundbreaking for us to reimagine not only these men, but to think about these women in their own right, even before they had their sons. Yeah, and you actually say in the book that not only were they, you know, erased and faced, have been facing that erasure up until this book, portrayals of the three mothers have been completely inaccurate as well, which we yeah. will talk about a little bit. So you do provide uh, little known details about their lives. How difficult was it to find information about them? What sources did you use to piece together <laughs> everything that you share with your readers? And also tell me about something that I um, noticed uh, that you did some research in terms of field trips as well. Like you visited Martin Luther King's Jr. birth home in Atlanta. Then you visited the Ebenezer Baptist Church and you actually describe how those visits made you more frustrated. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about it? 
Yes, the research was incredibly difficult. Again, finding um, evidence of the lives that have been forgotten, almost in some ways intentionally erased, is impossible, <laughs> nearly impossible. And so I also gained a lot of respect for researchers that had already completed these kinds of projects. You have to get very creative. You have to dig for everything everywhere. And you're going to find, you know, there would be days where I spent hours at um, a museum, like let's say the Schomburg in New York. I sat there for hours looking through letters and these boxes and maybe found one mention of the moms. And so that's how a lot of my days went <laughs> for about three years. But some days, you know, I found that that haystack and I was able to complete another part of the puzzle. So I started with works about the men. Um, like I said, there was so much about them written every year. There's a new book written about them, which is wonderful. You know, they are incredible men and very important in our history. I'm not trying to erase them. But I do find it really bold of these writers who are writing about them every year. I'm not sure what else there is to say about them, but very cool that, that there's books about them every year. So I had a lot to go off of there. I started with that. Um, I took any reference to the moms and kind of put it um, in my list of details. And then I went to the books that the men wrote themselves. Um, and they actually did mention their moms, not that much, but there was evidence that they contribute or they felt that a lot of their um, contributions came directly from what they'd inherited from their mothers as well as their fathers. Uh, so they gave more credit than I was even expecting myself. Um, and then I felt there was another part of the erasure that if they themselves had been speak speaking about their mother, then why had scholars ignored that? So that's something else that we could talk about. Um, but then after that, I took that evidence and kind of made a timeline um, on post all over my walls. Was, I became this kind of crazy investigator. <laughs> and every time my husband came home, he was like, what is going on? And I had these post-its all over the place. And that way I could see where I had an information and where I was missing things. And a lot of what I was missing came before they their husband or they had famous son. So really, even in history, this notion that before a man entered their life, there wasn't much to record. Um, and so I had to go back and really reconstruct the early parts of their life with historic context from the different places that they lived. That's why I traveled um, as much as I could to where I was in Atlanta. Um, with Deal Island, Maryland, it's, I mean, I didn't end up going to Deal Island specifically, a very small town, but I called local historians there to help me understand the history better because it's, again, the smaller the less important people think it is, and therefore there's not much out there. Um, and then again with uh, Grenada, I was planning on traveling there actually before finishing the book, but then with the pandemic was unable to, and I also had my son while completing this project, so I was on maternity leave, et cetera. So there's still a lot more traveling that I want to do. But even like you said, when I went to Atlanta and was in Ebenezer Baptist, this is the church that Alberta's parents built this is the church that <laughs> she was she was raised in. She played the organ there. She was the choir director there. She was so important there. And even there in their history, they talk about as if it's her. He couldn't have even been a part of this church had it not been for her parents and falling in love with him and saying, hey, can we 
help him on his journey to becoming a reverend. And the fact that she was erased even by her own church really bothered me. Um, and then as well at her own home, we talk about that home as if it's MLK Jr.'s birth home. Yes, that's true, but it was also Alberta's childhood home. And to not start with that, again, is, is very, um, this, it was stressful for me. I was there in person and just felt very upset. Uh, and I wanted to fix that. So I wrote this Time Magazine piece about it. And I'm just glad that some of these facts are better known. Can we shortly tell or offer a glimpse to our audiences of what Alberta, Louise, and Bertis taught their sons? I mean, there were some obvious shared beliefs and then their different approaches that they used to instill those beliefs in their sons. And you write about it in the book. Can we tell them a little bit about it, please? Give some teasers since the whole book really together um, and I love talking about their lives, but I'll try to keep it short. Yeah, exactly. uh, Alberta King was, like I said, raised two parents who built Ebenezer Baptist to be what they, when they arrived at that church and were the leaders of the church, there were about 14 members. It was quite small. Um, and they believed that in order to be a church, in order to say that you were faith leaders, that you had to have social justice as a crucial part of your platform, that you couldn't say that you were a church unless you were also fighting for people's rights here on earth. Um, and so they led boycotts of white newspapers that disparaged black community members. They fought for the first black public high school in Atlanta. Um, you know, they believed in this kind of, you know, I guess like dignified uh, approach to this marching and these movements without using the word nonviolent. Um, they, they took these kind of more peaceful strategies um, and were quite effective. Again, they were some of the first members of the NAACP, et cetera. So, this is how Alberta sees the world. You know, she's the only child of these two activists um, and these church leaders. And she believes that faith is not faith without social that these are the different tactics you can use to inspire change. And she's also very well educated. Her family really prioritizes her goal. So all of this to understanding how she raises not only Emma, two other children as well, she says to them, you part of the change, have to see what's going on around you, no matter how privileged you are, no matter what education level we have, and you have your voice to do something, to make sure the earth is how, you know, in, their, in her faith, how the Lord would have wanted us to see each other as fully human beings, all of us having equal rights, paying attention to the poor, paying attention to the oppressed, so this is how she teaches them. She tells them the Jim Crow, you know, this law that reigns supreme is the natural order of things. This is not how we should live. You are just as good as anybody else. Um, and here are different strategies that my family and generations of my used to accomplish change. Um, and so, you know, it's very probable that they were with her, you know, at NAACP meetings or sitting in church, hearing their father speak about this is how we accomplish change and why it's so important. Um, and of course, we, we know that Martin Luther King Jr., as well as his brother and sister, are born right around the beginning of the Great Depression. So they're going to see how the country treats them um, and their community members differently and how that's going to hurt them even more because they are people of color. So they're able to face that, that oppression very early on and can think through, okay, what are things that our community members need? Um, to feel like we are all 
most human beings uh, in this country. So I'll just pause there with Alberto. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It was just, it was so interesting to read how, as you write, all had different approaches to survival and their definitions of what it meant for each of them and their family members to thrive, in your words. So um, one thing that I really appreciated about the way you chose to write the book is that you um, did emphasize the diversity and nuance of the Black womanhood experience in the United States. Can we talk a little bit about it? Because I think it's so important in this context context or in uh, any other, you know, as you write, by no means can their identities be reduced into one. That's very important. Can we just uh, unpack this a little bit? Definitely. And it is an important part of the book for me. It's essential part because Black women are so often tied, you know, people put us in these boxes, they put us in these categories. Um, And in many ways, these categories are dehumanizing. In this book, I'm speaking against that dehumanizing treatment of black women, where we're told that we're less than human, when we're said that we're more akin to animals, um, and when our pain is ignored. And one of the ways in which that pain becomes, you know, I guess something that people justify ignoring is by treating us as less than human. And so I go through a bunch of these different tropes in the book that have been a huge part of American history, whether that's the Jezebel trope, the Mammy trope, the matriarch trope, the welfare queen, the strong black woman, all of these things saying that um, in some way or another, we don't feel the same things as other human beings do, um, or that abuses against us are justified and accepted or are okay. And one of the ways that I challenge that is through telling these three stories and their different approaches to life and the fact that they all came from different backgrounds to have very different experiences of the things that were happening nationwide because they had different access to resources they had different beliefs and even though of course questions in their stories and they all three raised these civil rights leaders without understanding the diversity and nuance of the black women you don't understand how the sons ended up being so different from each other either so it's really a comment on celebrating the diversity of our african diaspora because so often people are trying to reduce us mm-hmm. over and over again. And we're far too complex, far too beautiful to be reduced. So I really did want to celebrate that in the book and even to talk about that diversity more with Burtis and Louise and what they were able to teach their sons, since I was able to give Alberta a little bit of a shout out with Burtis. She believed that, you know, you need to confront the darkness and find the light um, that you can't, you know, just ignore the darkness. You can't skip over it. But in order to move forward, in order to have healing, you couldn't carry hatred in your heart, no matter what, no matter what somebody did to you, no matter what you've lived through or gone through, then in order to cope, in order to survive, you had to help other people find the light and find love um, at the very end of the day. And this is something that James Baldwin, in many ways, was known for. I mean, of course, he's much more, he has this righteous anger. He's a very honest critic of what's happening um, and in that way confronts that darkness. But many times he also said he was a witness to the power of light and he wanted more people to have these honest conversations so that we could move past this and find love um, at the end of the day. And then thirdly, with Louise Little, she was this activist. She believed in the fight for black lives and the importance of black independence Um, When she's a teenager, even, you know, when she's a young girl, this is how her family raises her. 
and she moves to Canada to join an international Pan-Africanist Marcus Garvey movement. She's incredible. She does this at 17 years old, and that's how she meets her husband, a fellow activist, and they travel around the country spreading the word of Black independence and Black pride long before Malcolm X is even thought of long before the Nation of Islam even becomes a thing. And the Nation of Islam has very direct connections to Marcus Garvey doctrine. So again, in terms of teaching something that the sons would later use to inspire the world, the connections in these three cases are so obvious and so clear. And that's not always the case with every mother-child relationship. But in these three cases, it is clear that the sons could not do it without what the mothers taught them. And it's therefore so difficult to even formulate a question about their resilience, considering that every single act and the very act of existence um, and motherhood experience is an act of true resilience. But um, and one thing, well, actually many things, many sentences, many paragraphs that you that you also talk talk about and write about is, uh, for example, when you say black women are the ultimate practitioners of this ability to turn tragedy into opportunity, face fear and persecution with faith and unmatched perseverance. And this is what I found incredibly important and create something out of nothing because it has been required of us. I think that it has been required of us part is just um, so powerful. And uh, I, we can talk, we'll talk about it. Is there anything that you want to just kind of add to this notion precisely that you've also uh, addressed so far as well and in the book that it's this every single act of existence and the way that they dealt with unspeakable losses truly um, is just a testament of both this idea that it has been required of them and their extraordinary strength. I think it's something that, you know, so many people will ask black women, how, how do they do this? And I mean, in a lot of ways too, it's this, it's again, this dehumanizing sort of, wow, they must be kind of supernatural beings for making it through this pain without supports and let's applaud them for how strong they are. So part of it is me celebrating, yes, in many ways, they were able to somehow make a way out of no way. And you see it in these three women's tragedy after tragedy, they're losing people. So much is happening to them. Their you know, resources are being taken away. They can barely feed their kids at some points in the book and they continue forward. So you do have this moment of how is this happening? How are they doing it? Um, and you definitely want to celebrate that resilience, like you said, of, basic, of just existing as Black women in the United States during these years. Um, but it's also to call attention to the fact that these things shouldn't like unavoidable burdens for them to carry simply because they were black women and so many black women today are still facing all of these pressures and not being given these supports yet still are being celebrated for their strength and the truth of the matter is this book again is about saying we're human beings uh alberta burtis and louise struggled through these things and it's painful it's not something that we should just kind of pass over i want people to read that part of the book and feel tears and feel sadness, see them as the the people that they, they were. And even understanding that these three men were, again, human beings. They weren't just literary figures. Day in and day out, they were risking their lives. Um, and they had family members and loved ones who mourned them deeply. It, it It's hurtful. So I want people to feel that pain. I want it to feel somewhat uncomfortable so that when we see 
issues that are affecting black women very specifically today in the United States, we start to fix it. We don't just accept it as an unavoidable lot or an inevitable lot, I should say, that they have to carry on their shoulders alone, but instead say, okay, look at how much they've been able to do, even without support, even without recognition, and in all these ways that they've carried our country forward to better understand their own vision. You know, Black women, when I think about us holding our precious children around us and our community members around us, and we are aware that the rest of the country sees them differently than we do, we have to transform the system so that they see them like we do. You know, I'm not just going to accept that something could happen to me or my son. Instead, I have to say I'm going to continue to fight for this to change um, while I am here on earth and breathing. And I want more people to join us in that fight. If you believe that it's powerful that we've been able to do so much even without that, imagine how much more we're able to do when we're heard, when we're believed, when we're supported. So even you think about Stacey Abrams, you think about Kamala Harris, many more attention to black stories black women's stories now i would say more than ever and it's not just about celebrating us it's about standing with us hearing us and helping us yeah and um you mentioned now uh, that stereotype of strong black women and all the baggage that also come with it comes with it yeah. and that's another thing that i also really uh liked in the book the vulnerability that you also put forward, that you acknowledge their humanity, their strength, but that you, as you mentioned, they, these women were also willing to express their vulnerability. And I think that that's another part of humanizing uh, these, you know, women in the face of dehumanization that, that goes on. Um, yeah. uh, so then tell me also about the factor of joy, Anna, in these resilient lives. I think it's important to talk about that because of that historical context, because of how they acted, because of today's context as well. So can we speak a little bit about their recognition and acknowledgement and how they try to still, still despite all these losses, um, have and have, you know, appreciate joy and create it when they could? Definitely. A huge part of the book is acknowledging different coping mechanisms. You know, it's not just they push forward somehow, some way. Uh, the book gives you really almost direct uh, instruction on how they each found ways and different techniques to survive and move forward. And it's something I'm saying that more Black women have to tell us their strategies for survival rather than be very modest and humble and just kind of saying, oh, no, I, you know, I didn't play that big of a role. But instead say, this is my story. This is my life. Um, and these are ways in which I, I, I was able to, to move forward so that many more of us can, can practice those as well. And one of the things that I think all three women were able to find, like you said, was joy and love and appreciation and faith um, that things could change because they were going to be a part of that change and their children were going to join them in that. So I love parts of the book where we just get to see them be families and love each other. You know, with Alberta King, where you have these family meals that they cared so deeply about, that every night they were all going to come home and hear from each other. They always had extended family over. They invited anybody who maybe wasn't going to have their own meal that night. And they sat around this table and just talked about what was happening in the world. And they even could address pain while also finding comfort and community and joy with each other. Community was so yeah. crucial to Alberta King and her family and celebrating one another and uplifting one another. Um, and she never saw herself as being any better than anybody else. I think a way that she found joy was 
giving back from her own opportunities and sharing them with as many people as possible. Um, and again, teaching her children to do the same. With Burtis, it's really incredible with her how she's able to do this because day in and day out, she's facing abuse from her husband. Um, she has, you know, nine children and she finds such joy in them. She loves them so deeply. I was able to interview some of her daughters um, and her grandchildren. And this was what stood out to them the most, her continued ability to find love and embrace her children in this constant hug of warmth and encouragement. If you think about James Baldwin as this queer man in the United States, as well as abroad, queer black man, um, and how much he's going to confront outside of his home, within his home with his mother, she supports him no matter what. So much so that everywhere he goes, he writes her a letter. Every person he meets, he tells her about them. When he comes back to Harlem, he brings everybody who matters to him to meet his mother. So, you know, we have writings about Burtis from Maya Angelou and Marlon Brando, all these famous people who said, you know, Mother Burtis was so important to all of us. And I think that's how she found joy, making sure that her children were wrapped in her warmth and love so that no matter what happened to them outside of her home, they would carry that with them and remember that she knew their worth. She understood that they they um, they were worthy of dignity and worthy of respect and love. And with Louise, I would say it's a little harder to find examples of joy in her life because there were so many direct attacks against her um, day in and day out. You know, the KKK and the Black Legion, which is another white supremacist group, are physically attacking her family. They burn down their home. They murder her husband. Um, they are then instrumental in intimidating her so much that a white male, you know, psychologist comes in and diagnoses her with a condition that she doesn't actually have. You know, she probably was suffering from depression, but he mm -hmm. says that she is imagining being discriminated against mm -hmm. um, and diagnoses her with dementia precox. And this is enough to put her away for 25 years mm -hmm. of her life against her will. That that kind of attack is just, again, heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. It's unacceptable. It's something that we need to question over and over again. Um, but still, after she's released from the mental institution, she finds joy somehow. And she says, I want to teach the next generation of my family. So all her grandchildren get to know her and learn from Grandma Louise and her story of being in Grenada, and she remembers all of these details. And before she passes, she lives another 25 years, yeah. and she wants to tell them who she was before she leaves this earth. And it was so uh, heartwarming on the other side. When I was reading some episodes, for example, the family trip that the Baldwins took to Puerto Rico at some point, yeah. or when they went to Norway with the Kings to, you know, for the Nobel Prize. So the mothers were still at some instances able to also see and the, and celebrate all the amazing achievements of their sons, uh, despite all the commotion and the constant anxiety, like you said. I remember that, you know, that sentence when I think Martin Luther King Jr. says to his mother, uh, I might be killed, you know, yeah. you should know. And that is just so incredible to 
take on and to still continue with this, which is why I, I'm so glad that you mentioned the importance of community as well and the kind of communities that all three of them both offer to those around them, but that they, uh, you know, seek whether it was church community or whether it was activists or family members as well. So then let's talk a little bit about faith. Um, you write in detail about it in the in the book, but please tell us shortly how did faith um, play a role and how did it also manifest in particular life situations or some life situations in the way that these three mothers raise and support um, their sons? Another example of their different approaches is mm -hmm. their different approaches to faith and mm -hmm. their ability to see beyond the circumstances that are right in front of them. And I think that's really how I would define faith more largely that, you know, believing in something that you cannot see, which could be your future, which could be your creator, which could be so many different things. Um, but all three of them, again, it's another coping mechanism for them to see some world in which things can be different and to just continue to push forward mm -hmm. towards that. And with Alberta King, for her, it's a very literal faith in God. Uh, this is how she lives her life. So no matter what happens in her family, when she loses her sons, she focuses on her faith. Even if it's something she doesn't understand, maybe she doesn't understand what God's plan is, and it's incredibly hard for her, and she admits that she's worried, and she admits that she's hurting, and that this is hard for her, uh, she still trusts that there's a plan, and she maintains that faith and, and continues to set her eyes on the future and then helping her grandchildren um, once their, their own fathers pass away. With Burtis, she has this faith even before she meets, you know, this, uh, well, I should say all three of the partners of the women were mm -hmm. preachers. preachers. Mm -hmm. So that comes and plays a role as well. But it's a little different in context than what we would see today. You know, today, if we had these three men that were preachers, you would think, oh, that's really unique that all three of them were. Then in, in this kind of context, so many black men sought preaching as a part of making a living or because this was the only place the black church largely, this means so many different denominations, but that the black church uh, was the only space where they could organize, where they could be heard. So it's sort of the nation within a nation. Um, and so it's not that uncommon that all three of them would have that plays a role in, in the men's own uh, thinking about their faith. So with, you know, James Baldwin's stepfather, he sees it more as this kind of avenging faith that, you know, white people are are the devils and he, you know, is, is preaching so that more people see them in this true light. And he's very angry. Um, and as we, we learn throughout the book that there's a mental illness that's also developing that he doesn't have supports to make it through. Um, and one of the reasons that he is so abusive towards his family members, but he also kind of uses his faith in that. So that can get kind of messy and complicated, but somehow Burtis still, again, focuses on how faith allows you to have and to find that joy that we've spoken about, find that love, find that light so that you can move forward without feeling held back by, by pain and by hatred. And then Louise, actually, her, her oldest son says that she never prescribed to a certain religion, that she actually believed that there were a lot of mm -hmm. different ways that you could have faith and be spiritual. And she tried to expose them to a bunch of different religions. There's even a quote um, that he says that she taught them to not get caught up in religion that they should be spiritual, but that they should not follow some of these kind of more human doctrines that had been instilled and kind of planted on mm -hmm. faith. And so um, there were different things that she believes, like they shouldn't eat pork, 
Mm -hmm. Um, So I think she sort of took from different religions and sort of made her own kind of system for what she believed she wanted to pass on to her children. But a big part of that was exposure to many different ways of seeing the world and believing, which um, fits in with her kind of identity as this global scholar uh, that she also wanted her children to be. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, because I just happened to be Muslim, I was interested, you know, it was additional, with additional interest that I was reading how uh, the last thing, uh, you know, that Louise said was don't let them eat the pig. Uh, mm-hmm. in, and then how Malcolm at some point wrote to his brother, Philbert, like we were taught Islam by mom, yeah. etc. So it was, it was interesting how as you say, it how it ended up manifesting, but even in different, even if it was different forms, um, it was this faith that kind of always imbued their actions and which um, we see the effects of which we saw in, in, in these men too. So you've said it, you wrote about it, and I know again, it's difficult to summarize a goal or rather goals in plural <laughs> of what you wanted to accomplish this book. What could it tell our viewers and readers? Um, I'm referring both to the lives of these three extraordinary women, but also how these descriptions offer a new understanding of the past century of American history and then where this country is today. I have, gosh, so many goals, like you said. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hard to summarize. But I mean, there's some, there's some that are more technical in the sense of yeah. like, of course, I teach this American history through the eyes of Black women Mm -hmm. and really make this argument for what happens when you center a story that isn't the the common, you know, I guess, um, protagonist and Mm -hmm. how you see things differently. Mm -hmm. If you understand each world war through the eyes of a Black woman, Mm -hmm. or if you understand the Great Depression through the eyes of a Black mother, if you understand the different policies that different presidents proposed and how that affected their lives. When we think about history more generally, uh, it seems sort of, you know, very far away as well. It seems that um, each American, you know, is treated the same and that's just true. And so to go through their lives, that was really an important goal for me that we had accurate understanding, again, of intersectionality and how different identities are going to be treated as well as how they're going to make it through these these tough times that we're dealing with as a nation. And then I also have goals of celebrating more moms and thinking, and that's not only biological moms, it's those of us that are doing what Patricia Hill Collins says is mother work, which is in so many ways, our feminine qualities of like caring for people and um, you know, making sure that you're raising others and teaching and educating others and nourishing others have been seen as sort of these like weak characteristics when I'm kind of flipping that on its head and saying, this is strength, this is feminine strength. I'm not saying female, it's any person, but this is something we need to celebrate. We also see it with essential workers right now during this pandemic. They're doing a lot of mother work and it's something that should be appreciated and recognized and seen. And so, of course, by celebrating literal motherhood, where I think those of us who do have children uh, can feel that lack of appreciation by society so often that we're sort of put in this second-class citizenship role, I want us to reevaluate that entirely, think about it as a role that is powerful, that is strong, that is influential, that deserves attention and deserves recognition and celebration. And then thirdly, it's also to talk about Black women as this 
beautiful, diverse, strong community and to be seen in a light that I want to be seen in, you know, having lived my life as a black woman for 28 years, I, there's very little that I've read that really celebrates the complexity of my identity. And that was crucial to me to join other black feminist scholars who have done that. And in so many ways allowed me to cope with was facing, I wanted to join them another document and another piece of literature that was this love letter to to my my community um and so yeah I could go on and on I have I have a lot of goals but yeah (laughs) yeah and 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 there's so much to say as well I mean I I remember you also talk about how the work of black feminists has influenced your work and uh, how I remember the one quote from um Harris Perry that we should not focus on black women solely as a type of conquered victim, but that we should just understand and acknowledge the circumstances um, that have oppressed them. And you talk about it always in terms of how we should also reclaim or understand the ways that they reclaim the agency. So you do humbly acknowledge that this book is not about you. And you mentioned it a little bit, you became a mother in the process. It is important that you, um, that your readers also understood how this work is personal for you as well. So how different do you think that you are now maybe after having written this book and having done this research because we talk about books that are transformative and unforgettable and life-changing for us as readers and it truly is so um but considering how much has actually also happened in your life uh, in the meantime tell Mm -hmm. us about that deeper perspective as you say uh that you gained while writing about black motherhood and while becoming one I will always carry these three women with me for the rest of my life. I mean, it's been such a crucial journey for me in terms of helping me define who I am as a Black woman. And then I became a Black mother while doing this work and um, will continue to be raising my children through, you know, whatever I see in this nation and in the world. And there's so many different lessons that they've taught me. And again, I mean, I've read the book several times, <laughs> drafts of the book, and you go through all of the edits. But every time that I read it, there's some new piece of knowledge that I gain, some new pearl that I, I carry with me. So something that I've been really carrying with me lately is, one, their ability, and we talked about a little bit, to be vulnerable, but what that means in terms of their honesty with those around them, that they are people and they have feelings and their children should know that and their partners should know that and they don't have to do all of this alone and they ask for help and they seek community and you know even when we're talking about all of these different you know kind of like self-care things that we say mothers should do but you don't really know how to practice that I think the book also gives examples of sitting down and having honest conversations with your loved ones around what you're worried about What's hurting you? If you lose somebody in your life, it's okay to let your children know that you also have feelings and you, I think it gives them an honest portrayal of who you are and it does them a favor to, for them to see you as a, as a human. Uh, and I think many moms feel like we have to hide that. Um, again, that it's okay for us to be ignored, that it's okay for us to do everything and, you know, even the, again, more technical things of cleaning the house and making sure there's a meal and getting everybody to school on time and all of these things as if we're just sort of magical beings that just keep together. And 
that doesn't do our families any favors uh, if they have no awareness of the effort that that requires. <laughs> you know, our children will grow up, you know, like much more slowly. They won't know what it means to be an adult later when they have to do these things on their own. So I also think that even just having that balance of, yes, of course, as an adult, I'm going to carry some things that I don't want to put on my children's shoulders. But I also think that we can include them in our world, invite them into our world a little bit more so that they see us um, and recognize us and are thankful for our efforts. And it's just this mutual respect and recognition that the three mothers had with their sons and I think played a crucial role in their son's deeper understanding of the human condition. But like I said, it depends on the day, what lesson is guiding me. <laughs> and I, I definitely will see more of it. My son is so young. I only have one child so far. So I think there's also a lot more that I'll learn from mm -hmm. uh, different personalities in the future and, you know, different phases that he goes through. And I'll come back to the book. And there is something that I want to not skip in terms of a historical fact um, and to kind of keep the eyes open of our listeners and viewers and the things that I was reminded about. And that was that um, you tell us that since their arrival and slaves in America, black women have been subjected to so many abuses of white supremacy, but there was this relationship to their motherhood, which was so attacked in so many different ways. And I do want to just remind how, you know, thousands of women of color in across the United States actually, and I admit, I did not know until this book that it is said that Nazis in Germany based their own forced sterilization laws on those practiced in the U.S. and that yeah. it was an estimate, as you write, a total of 70,000 persons who were involuntarily sterilized under America's statuses from 29 till 41 and more than 2,000 eugenic sterilizations, mm -hmm. um, and to which brought which and then you uh, write about current black maternal health crisis as well so these are all um, the book is so rich in so much history that's painful and so much um, of human uh, so many human stories and related to these three women but in general as well and you did uh, talk a little bit about the future and um, about the hope and I wanted you write how they these women also inspired you as well so and you wrote you told us a little bit in our conversation about the path forward and how these stories of women fit into that vision yeah there is so much to change and i hope that this book inspires uh, so many conversations and it it actually already has inspired some action i don't know did you see but i saw on um on twitter how uh, um a user uh, has also said how your book inspired her in Boston. Do you remember you posted about it? She wait, I have. Oh, she said, okay, so I, I got it here. Uh, just as I was able to build on the little that was out there, I hope still others will build on this as well. You wrote it. And then I saw on Twitter a comment of one user said, you've inspired me to organize stories from Boston activists and mm, organizers yeah. about their mothers and or cool and our other women take or caretakers. I'm a community reporter from Dig Boston. And I was just like, this is the yeah. power of books and the stories. I'm I'm excited. I was excited to see it because I get excited when I get a comment about, oh, I heard your podcast and this. So um, now I want to do this. Yeah. And that's the thing when you put work out there, now it has its own life. You know, you spend so much time with your own ideas and in your own little world. And then this is my favorite part, you know, it's, 
it's going to take on its own life and even people will see things in it that I didn't maybe even intend that they'll learn yeah. from it. And I was like, that's a great connection. That's very cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, said to my husband the other day, at any point now for the rest of my life, someone could be sitting, reading my book. Yeah. And I find that to be really beautiful. So no matter what happens with the book, I just feel honored that my work is out there and be helping to do something and make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. And that said, before we get to the five sweet questions that I always ask my um, guests for fun, but also to make them more approachable, and you would be so surprised the kind of uh, kind of different moods that are brought in after these <laughs> questions. I, uh, I do want to mention that I love the book cover as well. Uh, it's so gorgeous. And I am a freak for book covers. I am one of those weird people who just uh, like to to uh, see a nice book cover. So I warmly recommend it to everybody. And do you well, let's go with the five questions before we say before I say what's the message for the end. <laughs> the first question, Anna, is once the current coronavirus global pandemic emergency is over, and I have to put that because different people have different perception and they come from different parts of the globe when they join the uh, podcast, any temporary awareness might disappear. But what would you not want to forget from this um, lockdowns or from this pandemic um, uh, period? Oh, gosh, there's so much I could say. I would say the first thought that comes to mind for me is this interconnectedness of us human beings around the world. This was one experience that, honestly, I would not say unified us because, again, it's like I said in the book, all of these things were different depending on your own access to resources and to education. But it also stopped all of us in our tracks Mm -hmm. and, I think, forced us to pay more attention to each other. And that's something that I want us to continue forward with, but to think about the disparities that were highlighted even more and were made very obvious during this pandemic. Mm -hmm. Which of your personality traits has been the most useful? Not the best trait, but the most useful. In writing this book or generally in life? Generally, in your life. (laughs) (laughs) I would say... open-mindedness it's something that my parents raised me with I'm just so open to any experience any conversation any person I I love to to learn from all different experiences and it's something that I want to teach my son just you know be open to see where the world takes you Mm -hmm. Um, when you have 30 minutes of free time how do you pass the time I try to get a yoga practice in I know. I, I oh gosh, is it? Can you do it at home during the pandemic? I can't. I've gotten very good at it now. Now That's that it's been good. a year, you know, at first it yeah. took so much concentration, and I was sort of like, oh, I don't have to hold that pose. But mm-hmm. it's so important to my own mental health and my, you know, physical health that I've just forced myself to be able to do it. And now I quite enjoy it. It's kind of nice to not drive to a class and just be in my space and my partner really also prioritizes it he knows that I need that time so they just get and (laughs) yeah we've been able to make it work Mm -hmm. what skill or craft would you like to get better at Mm. I would say oh that's such a good question hmm you know, I'd love to spend more time writing poetry, being able to get my writing to be sort of 
smaller and more lyric poetic ways of writing would be very mm. cool yeah and now that we're all mesmerized with Amanda Gorman I think everybody's again being reminded about the power and the beauty of poetry yes. that's also been so often just put aside um, and and just now we are reminded thanks to her so um, kudos and I'm thankful so fifth question are any of your friends completely opposite to you or are most of them similar to you I have so many different friends and part of the privilege of traveling my whole life is like they're all over the place and <laughs> everywhere that I'd say more of us are different from each other. And I more realize that like the older I get that I have so many differences from my friends, but I love that, you know, three of my best friends since I was in middle school are white women from Laramie, Wyoming, and we're in many ways different in terms of experiences. And then in a lot of ways, we're similar in just, you know, the way we approach our friendship and support each other. But if you're thinking about personality, or if you're thinking about life experiences, or even things we're passionate about, they're really different. And I, I think that celebrating that diversity is something that, I mean, obviously, about that quite a lot, but <laughs> something that I care about deeply. Yeah, me me too. Um, I really have been sometimes forced to move uh, from country to country for different reasons, sometimes by choice. But I think that that both um, adaptability, but also then learning to appreciate the diversity and the kind of experiences and the open mindedness that you mentioned is really important. And that reminds us again to come to the end about the power of parenthood and what we instill in our offspring and our kids and those that we care about as you say yeah. so that said the three mothers hit the stands on february 2nd i want to really really invite and encourage everybody to get it besides the beautiful book cover the stuff inside is so important and wonderful as well and anna is uh, so kind and gracious and eloquent and i am honored and thankful and i hope that this book contributes as you say forever and ever to new kinds of conversations that will be adapting uh, based on the historical circumstances as well. Uh, anything else you'd like to tell to our viewers and readers at the end, Anna? I just want to thank you for the show and I love feedback. So everybody <laughs> reach out to me on Twitter or Instagram. Just tell me your thoughts. It's, you know, you've been in this, my own world, this book. So I really love hearing from people about it. <laughs> Yeah, that's um, we we will encourage them by by sharing this um, on all audio and video platforms. So that said, um, to everyone else, thank you so much for being with us today. Hold tight to those you love. Stay tuned for more conversations with people from all around the globe as we celebrate and promote dignity and resilience and dignified resilience. And of course, if you appreciated this and other conversations, please share information about it with your friends. Um, leave a message and stay well. I'll see you soon and have a nice day.